All right, hello and welcome. Glad to have our special guest here this month. I'm talking with Joshua Abrams from Meridian School in Boston. Nice to meet you, Joshua. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. Um, so I first um, met you in a digital space on our Mighty Network. Um, you know, I remember last year sometime towards the end of the school year, we we're having some discussion about remote learning and projects and all that. Um, so I'm excited to learn more about you and your school and what you do. Um, I haven't had a chance to talk to you too much. So why don't we just start with that? Why don't you tell us about um, you know, who you are and what your position is and what you do in education? Sure. So I've been teaching since I was 16. Um, so I've been, I've been pretty much an educator for 43 years now. Uh, and, I, and, and for me, I, I'm so fortunate. So my father was an accountant and would do math puzzles with me all the time. And my mother was a preschool teacher, a special needs preschool teacher. And she and a friend developed an extraordinary nursery within a Bellevue hospital in New York. And my mom would bring me to help out, right? So as a, as a young kid, I was being brought into that setting and, and it was a really creative, uh, beautiful place. Physically, they, they had an architect design, just the most magical sort of room for, for these kids. So I think, you know, from the start, I was being mentored both as a, a math guy and a teacher. So, so I, you know, being ever rebellious became a math teacher. Um, I was also very fortunate in high school. I had amazing math teachers and they put me to work when I was in high school. And then right after college, um, they said, we have an opening, come, come teach here. And I, I had been teaching uh, throughout college, but I had not said, I want to be a teacher, right? I kind of graduated college no longer sure of what I wanted to do because I had wanted to be a biologist and discovered that I didn't actually have the patience to spend 20 years discovering one sentence of what would be in a textbook. So I'm very happy to still read all the things that other people discover in biology, but I'm also happy not to be in a lab. And so they hired me after college and within a few months, one of my bosses said to me, because he never felt good about being a teacher, he felt the world does not respect teachers and that really bothered him. Um, and he said, I'm really sorry I did this to you. And I said, I don't know, Stuart. I, I think this is the right thing for me because I had, I definitely knew within a few months that it was a calling, right? I, and I think it was because I understood how complex the task I was trying to carry out was, right? And that it was never going to get boring for me. It was good. And it doesn't. I, I, I feel I have more questions now than I did then because I've been trying and sometimes succeeding as a teacher for 43 years. Um, so for me, I think the fact that it was a tremendously social experience, tremendously hard experience, um, and one where I would have to keep learning on fronts around my content area, around psychology, around organizational behavior and so forth, really, really captivated me. And I, I certainly am not sorry that that's been the case. I, I you know, I, I am not someone who distinguishes who I am at work from who I am in the rest of my life. I'm just a, I'm a teacher guy um, and I love it. Um, so I taught at many different schools, uh, but many types of public schools. I taught in a prison, I taught in a magnet math and science school. I taught in 
suburban affluent schools and urban inner city charter schools. And, and I was, I moved more than I ever thought I would because I was, I think a malcontent. I, I, and it was based on my looking at kids and seeing their being malcontent. Like it was just clear that schools weren't giving kids enough respect for their capacity. And, and so at each school I learned something new and then I think, oh, I now see what kids need. They need more of this, but this school won't let me do it. So I'll find the next school where I can do more of that and just kept moving around. Um, even though I always thought I'd be someone who'd stay at a school for 30 years because I admired the teachers who did, um, I was the exact opposite. And then uh, about 18 years ago, I started planning my own school because I'd run out of places to move around to. Um, so I had no administrative ambition. Uh, I am a teacher, but no one else started the school I needed around here. So I worked with some folks and founded Meridian. Um, we're in our 16th year now. And we are by design from scratch, a project-based interdisciplinary urban secondary school, grades six through 12. We don't have grades. We don't have final exams. We have exhibition evening three times a year. So if folks remember the coalition of essential schools, uh, we were one of those before it went belly up, Ted Sizer's network. Um, but it's all about, you know, kids doing lengthy investigations and, and building so that they, when they're a junior, they can do an original mentored year long project, right? So our capstone, which we call JIRPS, which stands for Junior Research Project Seminar, does not come out of thin air. They, if they've been with us in sixth grade or seventh or ninth grade, they have been doing projects of ever greater complexity. They have been learning how to not just answer questions, but you know, not just problem solve, but problem pose from the very beginning. So in designing the school, the, my, my, my goal was to set them up to do amazing things from start to finish through their years here and not to have it be, not to have longer term capstone kind of work feel like an add-on, right? It had to be intrinsic. Awesome, awesome introduction. I like, there's so many places I wanna dig in uh, with what you just started with. But I, I first wanna start with is, I feel like we're kindred spirits. Um, you know, my dad um, was a nuclear physicist, um, later got into um, IT and computer programming, and he as well was always giving me math puzzles. When I was a kid, we'd go to the grocery store, it was like a math project every time we'd go shopping. And my mom was an elementary, or well, she's retired now, elementary school teacher for 25 years. And um, those are good parallels. <laughs> so <laughs> once you started, I immediately was like, okay. And I'm currently working as a math teacher myself. So um, that's really wonderful. Um, I do want to get into um, some more in a little bit about what you're talking about, you know, scaffolding towards capstone and it not being an add on. Because I think really that's a great place for us to kind of dig into a little deeper. But I did want to just start with more about, you know, this decision to start a school like, you know, that's obviously a big move and um, that's a big venture to undergo. Was there someone or an experience that really inspired you to make that leap from just trying to maybe change within a school to actually go ahead and start something from scratch? So I was a little, a little past 40, right? Um, and I had, had taught in many places and 
I think at that point, there was a critical mass of experience, right? I know people have started schools in their late 20s and early 30s. I can't fathom doing it. I didn't know enough, right? I, not about starting a school. I didn't know about when I started one either, but, but about education and about kids and about teachers. Uh, I just would have been way too naive. Um, so I think it was a point of, I'm ready. I know a lot. Um, I know some people who will give me a little bit of help. Um, <clears throat> although I would have rather had a bigger group of people. Um, and I had sort of run out of local, local options. Um, so my friends described it as my midlife crisis, right? You know, some people get red sports cars. I started a school. Um, I definitely, excuse me a second, I have a tickle. <clears throat> I definitely um, just, just felt like I was not going to grow further and I was not going to give kids what they need in, in the settings I saw around here in Boston, right? I mean, there are some, some cool schools, but I was geographically, uh, my wife and I live in Boston, so that only gave me a, you know, sort of radius. Um, I think there are a lot of great progressive elementary schools in this area. And I think people then have this weird notion that by middle or high school, you must get serious, meaning creativity, <laughs> engagement, uh, aesthetics, uh, experimentation, open-endedness must come to an end. And, and you just watch these families looking for places that do more of what they had and they, they don't find it. And the head of my son's elementary school, which is very much like Meridian, but been around a lot longer, they've been around almost 40 years now, um, said it frustrated her. She'd try and help her graduating sixth graders look for a school that would continue with the sort of humanity and, and intellectual values that her school had. And her school does capstone. So those sixth graders at this school do what they call the grad project. And it's about a four month long project. And when you go to their fair where they share these grad projects, I, I get choked up because you see work of a richness and authenticity and personal connection that most people graduate from college never having done. And you just think if, if, if professors just understood that 11 year olds could do this, they would be more ashamed of what they get out of their students, right? They're just, it's, it's, we sell kids short. And for, so for me, I was just tired of kids knowing that that they were in institutions that didn't respect their capacity and didn't trust them. I once actually had a colleague at a school tell me, you don't understand, Josh. Teenagers are just looking for an opportunity to stab you in the back. And I just, I just, I thought, I said, that's just not been my experience. Sorry, you know. <laughs> so, but I think if you treat them that way, then they sure will. Like kids will reward adults with the behaviors that they're, that are inflicted upon them for better or worse, right? And if you let them know that they are young adults in the making and that they can take over your institution. Um, then you will get extraordinary things in terms of leadership and community behavior. And if you treat them like they're, they're just a step away from, you know, murdering you, well then, yeah, you're going to get some really disgruntled teenagers and you deserve it, right? If you don't, if you don't have that faith in them. Yeah, well, very well said. I was just listening to a podcast with Justin, I think it's Wright from MIT, and I had made a note of one of his quotes, um, it was, if you promise kids you'll take their ideas seriously, they'll give you serious ideas. 
Yeah. I, I, I just had put that down on my phone this morning. Um, so I love that. And yeah, if anyone wants to learn more about creativity being sucked out of students, of course, they can go look at Sir Ken Robinson and his work. And he also made me think of Ron Berger and his ethic of excellence, what you're talking about. Um, that, that's just really fabulous, inspiring work. It sounds like you're doing. Um, I'm excited to, to, to learn some more. Um, you know, what, so what is, you know, you, you created this school, like, uh, what's your role right now? Are you, do you, or how I'm do you head describe of school. Head, head of school? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. So until COVID, right. Um, I was head of school, director of admissions, business manager, two thirds full-time teacher, um, uh, definitely um, uh, sometime custodian and a lot of other things, right? We're small, everyone wears a lot of hats and I have worked pretty relentlessly for the last 18 years. Um, and it's been amazing. I've, I've learned so much, we've accomplished so much. Uh, COVID, and I, there have been a lot of discussions among my fellow teacher administrators and I about what my path will be in terms of will I just become, I, I can't keep the pace up quite frankly. It's, I was starting to feel like enough was enough. Um, my kids are launched and my wife and I would like to see each other occasionally. Um, so, uh, so it was a question, would I become just more of a full-time head of school and teach less or would I become a full-time teacher and let other people be head of school? And, and, and I was fine with either, but didn't know what I wanted and didn't know what they wanted. Uh, COVID really forced a decision and they sort of did an intervention and said in, in the spring, we see what you're doing, like all the things you're doing to manage this and make it work. Um, and being a guy with degrees in math and biology has certainly helped me be very proactive and, 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 and lead the school in ways that have been really successful. Um, but it's been, of course, a very full-time job by itself. So they sort of had a colleague take over my class in the spring. Um, and I've been a full-time administrator, but I also teach lots of math and computer science electives. And so right now, I think, I think I still have almost 30 kids, but I have them once a week in different classes rather than every day, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So I'm definitely getting my fix with all of the different ages in our school from six to 12, which means a lot to me. Um, so I'm teaching math research and investigation to sixth graders. I'm teaching AP Calc to a single senior who wanted it. I'm teaching a kind of data structure and algorithms class to some high school students and some CAD CAM stuff. So it's really fun. I'm still teaching a lot but not, it's not the same demand as sort of course a, a core 90 minute a day class. Um, and I think that will be how it is next year also. I think I am, I am now a, a part-time teacher and a full-time administrator, <laughs> um, but so still a lot of responsibility, but I can't imagine not being in the classroom. I think it's too easy to forget how hard it is. Um, and it's also just too much fun not to want to do it. I mean, so I wouldn't, I, I always get a little suspicious of administrators who who haven't taught them enough, you know, like people who decide when they're 25, they want to be heads of school or principals. I just think, but you don't know anything yet. Um, uh, and, uh, and I also just think it keeps you humble, right? And you're a better, you're a better leader of teachers if you're also still staying at least fresh with the, the pain and challenge and, and joy of, of doing it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, my, my next question was, um, you know, I always laugh before I ask this question. Anytime I, I talk with an educator, like what does a typical day look like? And I use air quotes because obviously in education, there's no a typical day just doesn't exist. And you kind of gave us a little sense of that. And even before we started this call, you were just doing a, you know, admissions interview with a student. You could be unclogging a toilet, I'm sure, teaching math yes. sixth graders, 
um, subbing a, a PE class, or I'm sure too, like any any day anything can happen, yeah. right? I mean, in, I mean, I, I always think about what the job of heads of schools at large schools are like, and it's a totally different thing, right? They spend their entire day meeting with heads of departments and board members and things like that. And, and I'm in the trenches, right? Like I, I just do this stuff and I meet with my colleagues all the time and it's lovely, um, but it's a much flatter hierarchy and we make decisions together. I mean, no meaningful decision in Meridian gets made just by me. Like, I don't believe in doing that. I hire amazing teachers and I want them, I want to trust their judgment and I want to hear what their thoughts are. And we're always sort of navigating, you know, options together. And my job is to help them do it and, or to me do it or implement it in some way. Um, so yeah, no, I actually tell people all the time, I go to work and I may have a list of to-do things. I always have a list of to-do things I would like to do. And invariably, it's hijacked, you know, right away. And of course, there'd be some heads of school say, well, then you're just not managing your job well, right? And, and the fact is they can delegate in a way that we can't. If I delegate, then I'm hijacking someone else's day, right? There's always going to be a kid or a parent or a teacher who has an unexpected need. And to me, that's part of the challenge of thinking on your feet and still navigating things. But there are things that I do much better at home, right? If I need a concentrated um, chunk of time, um, then I need to do that at home sometimes where there's peace and quiet and fewer interruptions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, I work at a K-12 school, but it's two campuses and our K-8 is pretty intimate and small. And, you know, I had a meeting with our 6-8 principal scheduled for yesterday. It was, you know, the one we had really been trying to get on the schedule and the semester and about five minutes in, um, there was a K-5 Christmas concert. They can't find the speaker. The microphone doesn't work. and me and him just kind of jumped into action right because it's what you do it's like ah this discussion about this curriculum da, 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 doesn't matter right now we need a microphone so this <laughs> music teacher can do what needs to get done and that's going to start in 15 minutes and we got it done went back to our meeting and life went on so um that's definitely um life well, at, a, at a, a small school last night we had our first covid case um so we've been very fortunate mm. We've been in person, uh, started, we kind of did our toes in the water in September with two days a week for every student, except for kids who we knew had not succeeded. We had a great spring online uh, time. We, we pivoted right away. We had full daily online experience and schedule. Kids did beautiful work and, and, and it was all online, which was sort of one, one benefit was we've never done our exhibition evening online. It's always been in person. And then you come in the next day and you take all the projects down. So people basically have like an hour and a half to see a ridiculous amount of great work. And this time we put it online and, and I've spent countless hours looking at the work. And I think it's really, and I did actually, the student I was just interviewing um, told me that, um, sorry, my phone is, um, told me that uh, she had gotten to look at our website and had questions about the, the you know, work and observation. So that's really been a benefit. And I think we have to think how we want to do that in the future. Um, so our spring was amazing and we've gotten through the fall and then we had our first case. And so that was deep breath time. And we, so we were doing testing. We started testing a couple of weeks ago. And so this came back with a positive in a pool uh, last night. And then this morning I had to wake up to find out who was in the pool, who was positive and so on and so forth. Then call parents and say, by the way, your child may have COVID and here's what the next steps are. Um, so yeah, that wasn't my plan for the day. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but it, I think it went smoothly and I'm glad we have the, this in place. Um, 
So I, I we're we're four days a week in person now, and and I'm thrilled. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I feel like I got a good sense of kind of where you you came from, and um, you know the where the the impetus for for Meridian School, and you know I did have a chance to um, you know poke around your website, and there are some great um, you know project samples on there and the project description. And I look forward to digging in a little deeper and. Um, I'll try and add a link to that when I when I post um, the recording of this. Um, so I would like to kind of transition into, you know, the, this the design behind this because you had mentioned, and it's something I have found with some different schools that have a capstone program, and even in my experiences, it does at times feel like a little bit of an add-on. You know, I I'm at eighth grade, and we have this culminating capstone experience, and we're asking students to do things that sometimes they're maybe not used to, whether it's posing an original question, um, conducting, you know, authentic research, um, presenting on an authentic product, so on and so forth. Um, and I, I've talked to a lot of educators in this space and a number one pain point that comes up over and over again is how to really embed this into the student experience um, before those culminating division experiences. So, um, I would love for you to share a little bit and for us to have a little bit of a discussion around how you approach this and what you do and, you know, what that looks like. And feel free to go in any direction you want to, whether it's how you hire teachers, onboard teachers, or what that looks like. I mean, let's just kind of go at it and, you know, how do you approach it? Sure. Well, uh, certainly, you know, I, I don't think I would have necessarily gone right there, but I think you're right that, that who you, and I say this, who you hire is everything, right? Um, uh, and we have kids take three core courses. They take humanities, they take MIST, which is our version of STEM, uh, and they take uh, Spanish as a, the required world language so that everyone can build sort of community around that because we're also in a Spanish speaking uh, community. Um, but then Kid Initiative has led to other languages as electives and things like that. But those are the three core courses every kid takes. and. Um, and so when we're hiring, the first thing you wanna look for is people who do not respond to your humanities posting, for example, by saying, I'm really excited about your English opening. We've never posted an English opening. We've never posted, right? You know, so, so if they don't understand and can't read the posting well enough to realize that we're not in that box. Like we want people who are really strong disciplinarily, but also really excited about bringing ideas together from different domains and helping kids do that. Um, we all know that when you teach kids in these boxes that what they do is, is keep their understanding in those boxes. They don't make connections. Um, so if you want, I mean, people say, oh, well, we want kids to be creative. Well, the height of creativity is making a novel connection. So you have to constantly put kids in that game of, of trying and seeing what that means. Um, so certainly hiring people who are very knowledgeable, very bright, but also creative and, and comfortable. I was talking with a head of school recently. Um, we've been meeting regularly as we all navigate COVID together. And she said they've had to change their schedule four times this year. And it's been very hard because her faculty is inordinately resistant to any schedule change ever. 
And I told this to one of my colleagues who laughed and said, did you tell her it's actually on our weekly faculty meeting schedule? <laughs> Which is true. Meridian has a, a schedule so that if you have an activity that you need, the classes are often an hour and a half long. But if you say, oh, well, I want to take the kids to the woods to do field research. How many hours do you need? Oh, I need four hours. Do you need a chaperone? Yes. That always works. We, you know, No one minds because when you're doing a field trip in Meridian, we're so small that you're not taking seven kids from seven different classes, you're taking all the kids from one class. You know, as a teacher, I, I get maybe annoyed in a big school if you take a quarter of my class, my students, because that ruins my class, right? But if you take all of them, that's just a chance to be a chaperone and go have fun in the woods with your class. Um, so our teachers are, are, have to be nimble, they have to be comfortable with flexibility, they have to be comfortable working in an environment where things are constantly changing. There's lots of stasis in terms of mission and purpose and how we do stuff, but people's ideas matter. And, and so you also have to be able to like say, okay, we are now doing this. And I think that's why the spring worked out so well for us, because my colleagues just said, I am now a beginning teacher again, which we all felt like, right? <laughs> because I'm still a pretty awkward online teacher, because um, I haven't gotten to do it as much as they have. And they just dove into that challenge. And and, and the things they were producing that were really designed for that medium were so mind-blowing in the speed with which they went there. They weren't saying, oh, woe is me. You know, they were just saying, oh, we got, we got our work cut out for us and let's dive in. So, so hiring people who are not high maintenance, I guess, is a fair part of the requirement. And I would say none of my colleagues are even remotely that. Um, they are oh, there's a challenge, let's brainstorm, let's problem solve. Um, and so that's a pretty selective process, you know, just trying to suss out that spirit um, and lack of rigidity. Um, then in terms of just scaffolding and projects, every course is a writing intensive and reading intensive course in some way, shape or form. You know, I, I am a math and science teacher and I give my kids inordinate grammar detail feedback and you know i always let people know that the the job of an english teacher if we had one uh is not to to is not, it's not just their job to teach english we're all teaching communication and kids formulate their thinking well in math and science and all other subjects when they write right um and and so writing is a is a is an inordinately important act in any domain and clear communication is and so, so we're all writing teachers, we're all reading teachers. Uh, and I think for kids, that just becomes the sort of, you know, water they swim in uh, as, as learners. They, they know that writing is important. Um, I teach a, a junior senior class called math modeling that all kids take. And it's, a, it's all about how to do applied math, how to start with a real world problem and then bring it into math and, and learn something new. And all of those decisions uh, are myriad and, and you know, involve all sorts of judgment. And so the kids have to write papers explaining the development of their model and the choices they made. It's not a bad model if it's not the model I would have come up with. It's a bad model if you can't justify it, if you can't glean anything new from it, if you, you know. And so all they ever do in that course is write papers. I wouldn't ever give a timed test. Develop a model, please, you know, in the next right. 20 minutes. And we yeah. don't do that at any, I mean, none of our tests in our school ever are tied. We just don't think learning is a speed sport. Um, so, so, so that's another point, right? If you want kids to do long-term projects, give them the time to do work well. 
help them get invested in, do, in doing work well, uh, give them an authentic audience for that work, which we do in our exhibitions, uh, um, give them time to fail and try again. I always say Meridian students are revision monsters. If you gave back any assignment of any complexity or substance uh, and didn't do another draft, they'd be convinced that you were a lazy teacher, right? Because they're just accustomed to saying, okay, whatever you like, tell me, whatever I need to do better, tell me. Um, I know there, my parents and 200 other people are gonna see this, please don't leave me out on an island alone uh, to figure out how to make it good, right? Uh, so, so from the very start, they, they start to realize that you don't check off an assignment. You, you hone an assignment. And I think that since that's something they're learning from when they're 11 on, by the time they're a junior, they're all over it, right? They really, they really own that in the most wonderful way. Mm. So when, and is that progression you just mentioned from 11 to like a junior or senior kind of the goal? I mean, I assume it's hard to, you know, always get students, if you're bringing them in at sixth grade or maybe even ninth grade, that they necessarily all are going to have these skills coming into your school, right? Not at all, so, right. Right, yeah. yeah. So you... Yeah, so we, they're all, I don't think you can do any, I think it's the job of the teacher to really look microscopically at what these skills are, the emotional skills, the academic skills, the habits of mind that are behind doing complex investigations. And then you must teach them explicitly. So for example, teachers often throw kids into groups and just think they'll know how to do that, right? Now, you and I know if you look at adults, most of them don't know how to do it, right? So, so I don't know why people think kids do. So in an engineering class I teach, um, very early on, before we do our first partner work at all, we spend an entire class talking about group work. And we have three questions. One, which is, why do people work in groups? And I'll pose that question and kids will write about it and then we'll share out all the answers. And they're wonderful. Like, well, because there are lots of tasks you just can't accomplish individually. Oh, because it's more social and it makes the work more interesting. And on and on, they get all the right ideas. My favorite answer was, because that gives teachers fewer papers to grade. Uh, <laughs> and I said, that's true, but not why we do it. But, I, <laughs> um, you know, but they really, they understand you know, all the different motivations, sharing of ideas and perspectives and, and so forth. Then the next question is, what makes group work effective? You know, what are the characteristics and what do you bring to that and how can you do that? Um, next question is what makes group work not effective and how do you debug that? And then we type up all the answers to how to make group work effective and how to fix it when it's not. And, and go to the teacher for help gets put down at the bottom of the list, right? We want them to develop autonomy in, in, in debugging that stuff, you know, it, before they say, oh, Josh, <laughs> Biff over here just won't do his work. Um, like how do you, how do you help Biff come, come to the experience, right? Um, so you must be intentional and, and take no, not one skill should be taken for granted. And, and you know, we certainly, we get kids six through nine. We won't, we've only taken, I think in 16 years, I think we've taken three or four 10th graders. Cause by that point, the curricular alignment is way out of whack. And it's, that's a, that's a big ask for us to come in as 10th and be ready to do a year long project in 11. So the kid has to really, it has to be a very good fit. Often kids will apply for 10th and will say, we'd love you, come in ninth. You'll have the foundations you need. 
Um, it's not a knock on you. It's just, you're not, you, we want to set you up for success. And many kids say yes. Some say, mm -hmm. oh, I'm not repeating. And we say it wouldn't be repeating. Trust me, <laughs> it would feel very different. Um, but you know, that's what we'll often do. So right, we, some kids are hit junior year after five years of, of Meridian uh, experience and some after two. Uh, I feel two is enough for most kids. Like yeah. you can you can get them pretty far. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't love the ones who've got five. Like that's just the whole right. a whole different beast. Um, but we're a little more. I think it's easier to get into Meridian as a sixth grader than a ninth grader because we're we're that much less. You know, we're we're a little less risk averse. We we don't want to set a kid up for failure. Um, so we have to feel like they're ready. Well, that's really that's really commendable. You know, to have that um, integrity because. You know, a, a lot of independent schools would say, um, well, yeah, we will take you because you're looking at the tuition money and you go, hey, but I mean, if you're going to do this and you're going to commit to it and commit to this model, like you have to be able to have that integrity to say, yeah, we will take you in a ninth grade because we want you to to have an experience that's going to improve who you are as a human in this world we're interacting with, you know, not like just trying to pump you through the, the system again, like. Well, that's another distinctive um, aspect of our model, which is we don't have an admissions department. All of the admissions decisions are made by full-time teachers reading the folders. They are not presented with a financial uh, target. So they will take a kid who has no money uh, as quickly or more quickly <laughs> than with money. Um, the, they think that's my job to figure that out and it is. Um, so unlike most independent schools are, we, we are able and I, we're always trying to do more, but we're very committed to economic uh, diversity. And we have, I think this year, 36% of our budget is dedicated to tuition reduction or financial aid. Um, now that's not enough but it means that half of our families are getting uh, you know, a lower tuition and we have many families paying under $1,000 for the whole year. And then that will throw in trips and you know, technology and whatever they need. Um, so we have a, a very considerable economic equity principle and we're always trying to push that number higher. I still need to pay my teachers um, and our tuition is not as extreme as a lot of the schools around. Um, but we managed to do a five to one student teacher ratio with that because the kind of mentoring that this work requires requires teachers to have a lot of planning time and a lot of one on one student time. Um, so it's really I mean, it's a dream job if you like doing this kind of work. <laughs> it's you, you have a lot of freedom, you have a lot of collaboration, you have high expectations um, and you have the time to do your job right. But but the admissions piece is interesting. We definitely leave seats unfilled when we don't have you know, we'll, because again, we want to make sure we're, we're, we're doing it right. Well, I won't make any friends in uh, uh, any admissions professionals by saying this, but I'm sure it's when you uh, take away 10 admissions people that magically frees up some money to uh, pay those teachers and cover those tuitions. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think um, even more importantly, like I was, I, I had a, a conversation with parents who were applying yesterday and they said, and this is a relief because we've had to do our information sessions online and we've had to really rethink the whole process and and we've been getting really lovely feedback I, it's been a huge relief um and they said between that and the website yours is the only school where we really feel we understand the culture and and the aims of the school the others feel so generic to us 
And I told them that I have this, this uh, evil fantasy because I've been at school fairs, right? Representing my school. And I say, I have this fantasy that I could turn out the lights and then run around picking up all of the admissions people and moving them to other tables. And I said, except for very few people, you would not have an idea because they all say the same things because they're not actually the educators. And the admissions people don't spend enough time, if at all, in the classrooms of their school. They don't know what's happening in their school. They don't really understand what their school is about. And so there's just sort of this, they all sound the same even if they're not. So it takes a school that really knows itself and cares to present that um, to the community. And, and so you know, as the founder and head of school, I think I can represent what we're about a lot better than someone hired to just kind of fill seats. Um, so yeah, that's, a, that's just another piece of it. Awesome. Um, well, I feel like this could be like part one of a five-part series. I'm just so fascinated with everything you're sharing, but I do, um, I want to bring the conversation um, to this junior research project that you mentioned. Um, and, you know, we, we kind of have this philosophy of the National Capstone Consortium of 32 flavors of capstone, and it, it looks different. It can look different. It should look different. And yeah, we do have a lot of members of our consortium that don't even call it capstone. That's really Sure. Um, not necessary. I mean, really, it should be something that um, extends over a long period of time, is student-driven, and culminates with some either product or paper or presentation. Um, from what I've seen on your website, it does seem like the focus is on this research component and a research paper, um, but please it's twofold. So, okay, so tell us um, more. Yeah, we don't call it capstone. We call it JERPS, right. which is another one of our school's favorite unpronounceable acronyms. Um, so, the junior research seminar is their fourth core course for that year. It meets um, four times uh, a week, so it really gets full. Oh no. My wife's gonna die. My cat just destroyed a jigsaw puzzle she's working on. <laughs> um, please. Uh, so it's. Um, it's, it's four times a week of actual class time, right? So it's not like it's ancillary, go home and do this. We, we structure it. We spend a lot of time at the start with problem posing. What makes a good question? What makes it uh, authentic? What makes it something that you're gonna, it's gonna be feasible and what's gonna make it interesting to you for a whole year, right? Um, and so we really work through that process. A kid shouldn't feel badly if two weeks into the term, they don't have their question yet. In fact, the questions often evolve as they start to read more. So they think they have a question and then they discover they don't. For example, we had a student who was very interested in environmental issues and housing and the intersection of those two things. And so she early on settled on wanting to learn about the tiny house movement. But the more she read, the more she discovered that the tiny house movement is not an environmentally sound movement at all. Um, yes, individuals have less space, but they're still not, a, it's not a good solution. And so she, pivoted in terms of thinking about urban housing. We're in Boston. Um, so her project was all about our neighborhood and its history and how environmentally sustainable ideas had evolved in the history of our neighborhood. So yes, every kid does a substantial research paper that has to be at least 20 pages long. I don't think any of them has trouble hitting 20 pages because there's too much, right? And so the longest I've ever seen, which fortunately was not one of my mentees, was 55 pages. And I was grateful not to have to read draft after draft of a 55 paper page paper. But you know, third, 25 to 30 is very standard, right? Um, 
And it's so, so here's the thing, it's all um, scaffolded, right? So a kid will have, so they'll have their, their core teacher who meets with them every day. And then they'll, once we know what content area they're in, they'll have a teacher assigned to them who knows more about that area. None of us are experts on their question. They're asking pretty rich or specific, you know, questions that maybe no one knows the answer to, but we know how to learn in that domain and we know how to coach them. And they meet with us at least once a week. And then each week there are targets. Read, read a source, write three notes, you know, read two more sources, write 10 more notes and so on and so forth. Um, after a certain point, start giving us an outline, give us a synopsis of where you think you're going. And, and so one of the things I always say to kids when they look a little green about doing a year long project, even though all the older kids have told them this is gonna be the highlight of your, your life as ac academic so far, um, they all preach how gratifying it was, is you never actually do a year long project. You just do lots of little things and lo and behold, <laughs> when you're done, something amazing has happened. I think that's a super important message to share with kids, right? Nothing we do that's complex just like happens that way. It's just, you have to separate it out into components. You have to bring them together gradually. You have to be patient and you have to not ever swallow too hard trying to like get your arms around the whole thing at once. Um, so yes, every kid does a major research paper. They have to have academic sources, they have to have primary sources, and they have to have interviews. And, and, and we'll work with them to try and identify. Sometimes they'll just read a paper in a journal that they think is amazing, and they will call up that professor and ask them if they'll talk with them. And more often than not, they will. You know, Or they'll talk to people in the field. I had a kid who was looking at um, hip hop music therapy. Uh, and so he was talking with hip hop artists and psychologists and therapists and so forth. Um, so the kids really learn how to just ask grownups for help, uh, which I think is enormous. You want to talk about pre-college preparation. That is an enormous thing to have the confidence to cold call someone and say, will you spend time on my interest, please? Um, so their, their source work has to be pretty varied, right? Um, they write that paper and then in most of the projects in the humanities in particular, they then do something with that learning. So for example, the girl who was studying housing uh, was really interested in getting her hands wet. She wanted to do carpentry she wanted, and she realized she couldn't build a house in three or four months. So she worked with an architect we set her up with to develop sort of a kiosk. It was kind of freestanding, like seven or eight foot high wooden structures with uh, a blackboard on one side and informational posters about what she had learned to engage the public and have them write back. And then she worked with me. So and then she worked with one teacher on the actually building of these devices. And then she came to me because I had to talk to her about siting and um, insurance and law and, and making sure it didn't kill anyone, right? Um, so I was the boring, you know, uh, bureaucratic guy, which was great experience for her, right? She needed to, she wanted to put this in a public place. How did she identify that? How are we gonna make sure it was safe? How do we make sure that she was covered in case it did hurt someone? Um, and so that was a very rich piece. For science and math projects, um, the teachers who run that course are usually humanities teachers, but for science and math projects, I always remind them that that sequence doesn't work as well. If you're going to design a science experiment, you don't want to do all of that paper research and then start thinking about lab equipment and experimental design. You want to do more in, in parallel. With math research, I will have a kid start doing open-ended math research from day two. 
Like they'll read a paper, it'll spawn some ideas. I'll ask them to pose some original new questions. You never want a kid, by the way, to solve an unanswered question. Unanswered questions are unanswered for a reason. You want to ask them to solve a new question, <laughs> right? So an unasked question is usually much safer than an unanswered one. Um, and so you'll get them to learn how to problem pose, how to modify factors or variables within a problem and take into some new direction and then try and apply the technique techniques they've been learning, develop new techniques to solve them. So in a case of a pure math project, we'll just be doing original math and learning new research and new skills all year long. Mm -hmm. I, I love what you said about approaching this as kind of micro projects or micro tasks. Um, I mean, I'm guilty of this. We have a capstone handbook. We give students, we kind of set them up a little bit. You do this year long project and kids do, but I do take our handbook and I parse it up intentionally to make sure I'm not creating a, a too big of a thing for the students. And I do try and uh, manage that piece for them so it is more um, digestible. But I think that's a great message in, in general about how we kind of approach the experience for students. Um, and, you know, because adults, same thing, if we're, adults are doing a complex problem or a complex project, we don't say, I'm going to run a marathon by June, we say, well, I'm going to um, do a walk in the morning, it can be as simple as that, I'm going to um, do 10,000 steps per day for tomorrow, and, you know, so on and so forth. So that, that's just a really good way to frame it, I think, for, for students. And we help them, I mean, so you, yes, we, we scaffold it, but we also work with them once, especially as the project's going on, they're gonna know more about how to tease apart the particularities of their project. But even with a sixth and seventh grade class, if I'm gonna have an assignment due or on one of the rare occasions, I'm actually gonna do what we call a quest, which is a test, but untimed and repeatable until you have mastery. Um, I'll say to the kids, what's a good date that works for you? If you look at your lives right now, let, so, so I'm constantly giving them some voice and autonomy and thinking about, well, what is my workload, workload right now? Do I want that sooner? Do I want it later? And as a class, they're sort of have in similar places and they'll, they'll let you know, you know, so it's not just from on high. And, and there's so many ways we sort of bring them into that process. Uh, when I have uh, kids in my engineering class write a, a paper on an application of robotics, you know, pick a very specific application, one robot. They've been building robots. They've been reading about robots. They've been studying robots for a few months. And I say to them, okay, I'm not gonna give you the rubric. Uh, you're gonna give me the rubric. Could you all write down three or four things you'd really like to read in each other's paper um, about an application of robotics? And then we fill up the board and then I type it up. And even though the list is ridiculously long and we say, okay, there's some of these are must do's and some of these are, if it's accessible information do's, um, but uh, they don't look at this you know, list of 20 or 30 things and say, Josh, how are you getting us to do this? This is a ridiculous list because it's not my list, it's their list. So they're learning how to self-assess and how to goal set from the earliest points. And that is super potent. First of all, it's just sneaky, right? It gets by and <laughs> it's like, no one can blame me, not my assignment, you yeah. came up with it. Um, and it's wonderful how well that works. Uh, and then they'll say, you know, how long does the paper have to be? And we'll say, well, 
long enough to answer the core questions we all agree are, are no miss questions and some of the others. Um, and I suspect that's in the three to five page range, but it's certainly not two pages. There's, you can't answer these questions in two pages, right? And if you don't have enough information, that'll tell you to pick another topic. Um, so just constantly bringing them into that and thinking what, I'm about to start something. What does good look, what does good work look like? What, what, will, what will feel right? Right, and if you can get them reflecting on that as a habit, then they're really set up for a capstone project, right? Because then they're they've been for years saying, "What is this going to look like when it's excellent? Why, when will I be happy to put this thing to bed?" I, I love it. Um, like I said, I feel like this conversation should keep can keep going. Um, I, um, I I kind of this this. From time, I, I want to wrap it up. Is there anything we, we didn't cover in our conversation you really want to share? I mean, <laughs> uh, I mean, I think there are lots of things about different subjects and what it feels like for different learners in different areas of learning, right? Um, which is why I sort of mentioned the difference between how some of our humanities projects flows and other things flow. Um, so I think that being open to the, the nature of the question, um, talking more about problem posing and how you help kids get to that place because it's different in different areas, right? Um, understanding that a lot of these projects end up interdisciplinarily rich uh, and how you help kids get to that place. Um, so yeah, I think there's a long list of things. And I just think as a faculty, you just wanna continually grow in our, in our understanding of how to do those things and what it means to be learners. But the exciting thing, of course, that we, constantly want to jump up and down and wave our arms around is we're telling the kids you can be a junior historian artist mathematician psychologist scientist you name it and don't ever let people tell you otherwise right like we have enormous regard for your intelligence and and we will not sell you short we are not going to tell you that you get to do research when you are in grad school Right. And that's honestly when it happens for many people, unless they go to small colleges, I made a mistake of not going to a small college. I was a biology major. You know what topic no professor ever told me to study was statistics. You know why? They didn't think it was their job to teach me how to be a scientist. They thought it was their job to stuff into my head so much science that when I went for a PhD, someone would finally teach me what it meant. And, and that's criminal, right? It's just ridiculous. Um, so I think the beautiful thing about Capstone Projects is we're giving people a taste of their capacity to do phenomenally unique work before it's too late and they don't realize that it's worth pursuing that. Wow, what a great message. Um, I can't thank you enough, Joshua, for taking the time to share with us um, about your school and about your work in education and all the the wonderful work you're doing at um, Meridian, uh, the Meridian Academy or Meridian School. Meridian Academy, yeah. Meridian Academy there. Be Meridian Boston. School Academy sounds snootier, and we're not snooty, but somehow yeah. that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Um, yeah, you're in Boston, and you know, please continue to uh, engage with us on the Mighty Network, and um, I look forward to more conversation and more collaboration with you, and learning more about all the wonderful work you're doing. So thanks for uh, joining us. Um, um, today on our National Capstone Consortium podcast. Thanks for having me. And I also look forward to more collaborations. It's just a, it's so, it's a fertile way, a place for all of us to work. So it's been exciting joining up. Thank you. Great, great. thank you.